You are tuned to Fundshack, the leading source of inside knowledge from leading private equity and venture capital investors. Next up is Walker Lade, managing partner at Livingbridge. It's a highly successful private equity firm operating in one of the world's most competitive mid-markets, the UK. And in recent years, it's shattered the traditional mid-market buyout business model by using its success to build out a diversified international mid-market investment platform. It's July 2020, and here's what. Weird times though, hey? Um, for everyone in general, of course, but if you're looking to invest money or grow businesses, particularly weird, I'd imagine, and also difficult to summarise, but how, how, how are things going at, at Living Bridge and for your portfolio? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it is extremely weird times. I think weird is an understatement. It's unprecedented. All those sorts of biblical references are are very much on the on the on the money, aren't they? Um, you know, I think people forgetting we've never seen anything like this. This is this is very different from the GFC. This is a enforced shutdown of circa one third of your economy, um, with no real plan and done with limited to no notice. Um, and and so people have been doing stuff on the fly, both in terms of the science and the economic response. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's been it's been. Difficult to difficult to plan on a sort of personal level beyond you know a few days, uh, and if you're running a business, very difficult to plan without any clear view of what's coming. Um, having said all that, our portfolio uh, seems to have been okay in the sense that one, it's diversified, and that's really important. We're very big advocates of not concentrating too much on one or another sector, but diversifying. And I think it's probably because. Um, we had this Brexit lean, if you like, in terms of our portfolio. So uh, we've been on heightened alert for Brexit and a no-deal Brexit for probably the last, what, two years virtually. Um, and that pushes you towards a certain type of company. You're sort of building resilience in your portfolio. Now, no one can design a COVID-ready you know, ready portfolio. It's just impossible. But I think the elements of it that meant, you know, our lean towards... Uh, connectivity and IT services. We lent towards healthcare, uh, and in terms of consumer, a lot of it was domestic tourism built, um, and that really helped. We've got very limited stuff, which involves moving stuff across borders, which is making things difficult. Um, uh, we do have our fair share of consumer and the consumer restaurant sector, which can be very hard here. But actually, overall, we've had some companies having record record months in terms of you know turnover and, and profitability. Uh, and quirky ones, you know, ones you just would not think about. So, for example, we have a company called Boiler Juice that's a uh, provider of domestic heating oil for people. So it's in, in a platform, a marketplace, if you will. Now, it, it had two of its best months ever in April and May. Mm. And it was just off the chart. Um, now, partly because we're all staying at home, partly because oil prices are low, but it's expanded its market share enormously. Uh, using its tech platform and enabling people to connect, enable suppliers to connect with, with consumers. So it's been rather strange. And overall, I'd say, look, I'm, you know, I, I liken Brexit, I've used the example a few times to, it's not Brexit, engage brain. I liken uh, COVID to, you know, here's our pieces on a board which we sort of position for advantage, that's our portfolio. And then COVID, literally, someone's come across and, you know, without you looking, shaking the board, and you've come back and gone, oh my goodness, what? <laughs> That's why I now am. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, 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 you, you, you sort of have to make the best of what you've got. And thankfully, with our lean towards service, our lean towards tech and healthcare, it, it seems to be okay. Yeah, it's amazing. So you were, you were bracing 
for one kind of defensive manoeuvre, but it seems to have positioned you rather well for a completely different... Well, well rather well is an overstatement, I think. I think positioned us sort of... So we had, we had, we had sort of time to respond. I think our management teams were... Um, I mean, they've been brilliant, right? I mean, some, some of the things that these, these uh, CEOs have had to deal with, you know, furloughing, um, you know, trying to get liquidity in the portfolio, in their companies rather, uh, dealing with colleagues who uh, are deeply stressed by what's going on. Because again, they've never seen this before. Uh, and in the more challenged areas, people taking, you know, 100% pay cuts for three months. Yeah, it's just unprecedented. And, and really, we are grateful. They've been so uh, resilient in their response, so willing and open to talk about how we move forward and challenge all the things that they've built up. I think one of the things is mindset. And this has been a really big thing. There's no use wishing for what was. This is kind of where we are. And, and actually, you just have to adjust uh, and move yourself to this place. You know, we had one or two companies on the on course of record years and actually gone from record profits, uh, seemingly, to zero because they've been forced not to trade. Uh, and that's really difficult. But you just have to adjust and go, no, this is the new normal. Get on with it. Yeah, it must feel unfair. But, but you're right, you've got to be stoic about it. Are you having kind of new money decisions, conversations? Uh, limited, actually. So again, we've been lucky there. Some of the, uh, the support has been, again, in the obvious sectors, so travel and also um, restaurants, where we've had to support. I mean, there's just no... And again, for reasons which people don't understand, it's not so much the, uh, um, you know, can they open again, as when they open, they need working capital to survive and, you know, build up. Uh, and that's the big thing which we've been, we've been really focused on, getting that cash flow profile correct and getting a position where we can get them through the worst. And you're sort of solving not just for you know, the current crisis and opening up in sort of July, August, September. You're thinking if winter hits and we have some sort of, you know, I hope not, but anyway, national second lockdown, then you're having to think, well, how much can we pain can we suffer in that situation? Mm-hmm. Um, as, you know, so it's a really difficult equation. You're trying to solve for, Will people come back into your restaurant? Will they travel? And what happens if, despite all that, and they want to, do we have a second lockdown? I mean, this, this is really hard stuff. Um, but again, overall, I think that um, uh, we're finding it's, it's, it's just about being realistic and grounded and, and being able to, be, to pivot if we need to to a, to, to a different position. Um, and look, there's always winners and losers, right? There's always a chance for new stuff to happen here. And we've seen that. We've seen that in, in, I'm not trying to be a, you know, sort of, a, you know, trying to sort of be a jackal about this or be a, a hyena in terms of picking off the bones of people. But actually, things get reshaped. Even sets that you think are maribond offer opportunity. Um, and, and, you know, if we don't take it, someone else will. So you're thinking about making new investments all the time? We did. We did. we did. We did two new investments right in the middle of uh, lockdown. Um, we did a company called Chill Insurance, which is a tech-enabled platform for uh, uh, insurance, um, you know, consumer insurance in Ireland. And we did a, a cloud security business, a cyber security business in Ireland, in Ireland as well. It's quite strange. They're both in Ireland. I'm not quite sure why. We'd never done a deal in Ireland, and suddenly like buses <laughs> came across. But um, yeah, no, so they, 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 we did two of them. And, and we were fortunate because we met both companies before lockdown. Mm. We were already quite well advanced in our thinking. And then we just sort of figured out how can we get this done when we can't physically see the people, meet the people. And you just strip it right back to what I need to know really, what can I um, do later on? You know, what is it stopping me getting this deal done? And showing an appetite for um, getting a deal done was really important, I think, because a manager was appreciative of this and they, on both companies and the shareholders, the vendor shareholders as well, that we said we'd try and get something done and they worked with us to get it done. 
were the structuring or pricing of either deals affected? Um, I think the structuring more than the pricing because the banks were um, a little nervous. Uh, they're focused on supporting the existing customers rather than new lands. So we've, we had to work quite hard to get the structuring right. In fact, that probably was the, the biggest issue, getting the banking right, making sure we're not taking on too much uh, leverage. Because of course, you know, you take too much leverage on and your flexibility in this environment disappears. Although both businesses are really quite resilient. I mean, cybersecurity, you know, in a cloud delivered platform is pretty powerful at the moment. Uh, and, and insurance, you know, okay, there's issues, but people are going to buy insurance. Are you looking at um, any government support funding schemes for your portfolio companies? We, we have, and, and um, where, where we have deemed it necessary, we've taken it on. Um, so following and, um, and Siebel's, we've, we've, we've taken uh, on board. I think the, this is a difficult one because, you know, if you created a business over 25 years and then suddenly you're mandated to shut down, whether you like it or not, then I have no issue with taking support because basically the government has told you because it's a health crisis to shut down and the insurance sector didn't come to the rescue because they excluded all that in your, in your, in your, in your policies. Although we'll see what happens in, I think, September when they've got a court case going on about that. But, you know, this is, this is difficult stuff. And the government, I think, rightly uh, went for a very bold response uh, with, the, with the furloughing scheme and the Siebel's announcement. And, and that, that's right, they were right to, because uh, again, we've never seen a situation where you have a, a, a designed forced lockdown of your entire economy. I mean, it's, and actually worse still, not just here, but internationally. So this was happening across the piece. And if we're not careful, we would end up creating, moving from a sort of health crisis to an economic crisis, which we're gonna have, but you know, that, that sort of response is limited, I think, a bit. Uh, and then we'd have a social crisis and the thing would spin out of control. Um, and that, that would have been, been pretty awful. So yes, we, we, we've taken, not everywhere, because some where companies don't need to, we just, haven't, we just haven't done it. So some of our tech companies, they just didn't need it. Some of our healthcare companies, they didn't need it. And we haven't. But uh, I mean, the thing I say to everyone is, there's no badge, there's no prize to say I didn't use government support. Because if you look at it, if I took no government support whatsoever, am I sitting there thinking my companies operate in isolation? They don't. They're companies they trade with, customers, who would have benefited from government support. So whether we like it or not, we all have benefited. And you've just got to remember that. Yeah. And obviously you, you've got a, a fairly international footprint these days. So yeah. you're looking at lots of different regimes in this regard, I assume. Yeah. So, and again, it's been interesting to see the, the Australian response, which is interesting, or, and New Zealand, actually, because a lot of operations in New Zealand, um, and both the health and then the sort of economic response. And also the US, which is a bit different. Um, and every one of those different uh, areas had their own particular response to what was going on in that particular country. Uh, and, you know, we could see what was coming when we sort of saw Australia and, and actually we were thinking, wow, this is, this is, this is going to be interesting. And we were sort of braced for lockdown, um, albeit it was very confusing when it sort of emerged because it wasn't a, we're locking down. It was sort of 16th of March, I think it was, when the Prime Minister stood up and went, we might lock down, but we may not lock down. You know, don't go to restaurants, but do go to restaurants. And, very confused response. And then a week later, we locked down. Um, actually, we just went, we're locking down, move on. Uh, and we just put everyone on high alert, actually a few weeks before that. What would you say about your investment rate overall for 2020? <laughs> it's a bit low. <laughs> 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 than we're expecting. Uh, I mean, look, we went into 2020. Um, uh, and it was really uh, sort of set up to be an interesting year. I mean, we had good portfolio performance. 
Uh, we were sort of middle of fundraising, um, which was going extremely well. Uh, and we had a load, load of deals lined up. Uh, and then it all sort of um, got challenged by, by COVID-19, um, which, which, is, uh, which is made it difficult. But look, we're in a much better situation than many, many other people. And, and so in a sense, you know, you could lament about what could have been, but we just look and go, look, we're fortunate. If you look at the business at Livingbridge, which is a fixed revenue, long-term revenue business being a private equity business model, versus having to fight for a turn every year or every day as some people have to. Um, and so that, that gives us the chance to reshape and do stuff in our portfolio, where again, it may feel like we're doing the work, but we're not really, the portfolio companies are doing the work and we're helping to guide, support, uh, and, and help them you know, through what is extraordinary time. So, you know, we never forget, it's them who do the real work. You know, it's they who have to execute, not us. And so, yeah. you know, <laughs> it would have been great to do stuff, but. And again, you look at the, the what would have been a good sector to invest in six months ago is not necessarily a good sector to, to invest in now. Um, and what is blindingly obvious, and this is the problem, everyone's gone, well, what we're going to do now is IT, healthcare, and financial services. Well, if you can work that out, so can I. And actually what's happening is the price of those companies have been bid up to, to, to an extraordinary uh, extent. And again, you look and you go, well, I want to back those companies that have been resilient. Well, you can see. <laughs> How did you do through COVID? <laughs> and we're still in COVID, but how do you perform? And you know, that's a good company though. Um, now, that, that I think makes it quite difficult to continue the sort of rate we wanted to continue. But you know, the joy about being the entrepreneur under the market, the entrepreneur driven end, is they're really reshaping and reforming to sort of focus on where growth could come from. And um, within all these areas, even the IT and healthcare, and that stuff, it actually is reshaping to focus on those who will you know, go even faster. And so our job is to identify those and not worry so much about the entry price, the entry cost, but just saying, actually, this business will thrive in five years' time. Why? Look at the drivers, understand the drivers, and focus on understanding and delivering those. So there is a lot of uh, work for you to do in terms of thinking work, in terms of resetting your thematic framework and being alive to what's going down out there. Absolutely. And that, I think, has been what we've been doing in lockdown. So... It's been interesting. Um, we initially went in, as you do, with, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? You couldn't even see beyond the week. And as things start to settle down, that initial adrenaline rush sort of starts to abate a bit. You start to focus a bit more on actually, well, okay, the portfolio's fine. You know, they know what they're doing. They've set up uh, and we haven't got the crisis we thought we'd have in quite the same, quite the way we thought we'd have. And then you look at new deals. We've got a couple done. And I was thinking, right, okay, everyone step back. Stop having the daily, you know, in fact, sometimes hourly calls that people are having and focus on the longer term. And so we sort of made sure that a whole bunch of us were focused on the longer term beyond this, trying to unpick out of this COVID crisis, where would growth come from and how would growth come, come about? And we, we reached out, um, we leapt a little bit, we reached out with our origination uh, efforts into talking to companies where we thought they might end up being winners, albeit there was no deal to do yet. Uh, and, and actually, it's proven quite interesting that um, there, are, there are areas we're going to need to address, which we probably didn't think we had to address. So I know people sort of go, it's obvious that infection control is really you know, a new thing. Uh, and PPE, which was a moribund sector, really, actually suddenly a very, very interesting sector. Now, is this a bubble? You know, is the pricing and volume growth getting sustainable or not? Well, the answer is the whole way we look at health and health security has changed. And it's been a complete reset in the way that, that whole activity works. And so you need to play into that, into that area and understand 
in five years time what might happen because i think we've all got to be clear that you know uh the whole emphasis of healthcare has been on treatment uh once you have something uh, and building lots of hospitals and actually we think about that um what hit us is not the building hospital it's basically the front end of not being able to cope with a, a novel pathogen that's come about uh, in a way that, I mean, some of the stuff is very basic, right? You know, we didn't even have at some point you know, things to cover our, uh, our aprons. We didn't have gloves. We didn't have, you know, masks. Um, we didn't have sanitizing stuff. You know, this is crazy. This is basic stuff which just needs to happen. And, you know, we need to make sure we're not reliant as we were on shipping the stuff in from China. Mm. You know, um, that, that, that was, it was quite a scary place. We we're thinking, in order to deliver security, health security for our for our for our uh, our, uh, our um, you know population, we're reliant on countries. And if you look at the the rhetoric between China and the rest of the world, you can't say it's exactly perfect and friendly, can you? And we just can't be there again. So again, within that, there will be opportunities. It's not just with regards to healthcare. Things are becoming so cantankerous between China and the rest of the world that it could affect the whole global supply chain. Sure. Totally, totally. And, and you know, it, it, and again, the you know, once we be careful how because it's difficult to call, and there's still so many ties and so many links that, that are there. And in general, the the rhetoric is being played out at the sort of political level. We need to sort of go past the election in the US this year to see what happens next. But certainly, you know, things like telecoms and in the nuclear area, you've got to be really careful who controls that and the sort of slightly um, you know, lackadaisical approach to, oh, it doesn't matter. That's not, that's not clear anymore that that's the right way to go. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm interested to see how that plays out in the next few years, but my suspicion is that we're relying on ourselves a lot more uh, than, than we did in the past. Yeah. And so you've been uh, sector focus players for a, for a long time. Do you think that um, you may have to uh, increase or change in some way your sector focus as a result of this new world? I think it's about doubling down actually. So one of the things we, one of our themes was connectivity. And we've been into connectivity for an awful long time, um, going back almost 10 years. So we saw connectivity in terms of how you get, how you get access to broadband and, and what that means, cloud uh, and how, how you uh, get into the cloud. And the other thing is sort of, and that's all unified comms, that sort of stuff as well. Uh, and the final piece in this is what kind of business models, how do you reshape your business model to address these, these things? Because saying I'm moving to cloud is not just about being able to do this. Actually, it, it has implications for your physical locations. It has implications for how you deliver security. It has implications for um, the way you can reshape your productivity as a, as a the firm and how you can work. If you're not having to travel quite as much to the office or not, there's implications with commercial, you know, um, office sector, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so we've been thinking about this quite hard. And you know, one of the things we 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 doubled down on was that the tech, the, the connectivity sector is actually really complicated and people have taken it for granted. You know, if you're sitting in in you know the city or SW1 or wherever, access to broadband is really sort of straightforward. You can get as much bandwidth as you want. And our view was actually as bandwidth becomes more ubiquitous you end up seeing a situation where people just will consume more because they create things out of that uh, that they want to do and then the more that happens the more the consumer whether it's business consumer or, or you know, sort of personal consumer uh, gets used to it they want more 
uh, and this is before we even started to think about things like you know internet of things where you slap a slap a chip on everything and suddenly you're collecting massive amounts of data it needs to be sort of passed and understood and 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 you know uh, deliver in the format that people can actually use and you're sort of thinking okay the internet's one thing right it's not it actually depends on where you're physically located next to a node that delivers the internet and your speed if suddenly you you know you're a business and you want it to be delivered without any interruption you've got to really worry about who you connect who your provider is and whether they're capable of managing it because it's a patchwork quilt mm. um and literally where you physically are your service depending on your demand you're putting on certain on, on your connectivity uh is very different and so suddenly that's become and as we thought it would become and actually to be frank and we thought it would but not quite so quickly because no one anticipated covid but suddenly the demands being placed on it on on on, on sort of the you know, broadband are, are exponential in terms of what we thought it would be barely a few months ago uh, and it got to a point where unfortunately openreach decided not to continue provisioning so you, at one point you couldn't get any new connections because they just were overwhelmed in looking at the infrastructure currently let alone giving new stuff and suddenly comes to go well hang on we need resilience when it comes to connectivity because you know we've now embraced the cloud and if cloud working is important and mobility is important then suddenly we need to really think really think even if you're a really small company it's not just about you know the speed of broadband my website whether it's, it works or not it's actually infrastructure links to the rest of the world and your your staff that matter so again it's an enormous sector growing again really quite quickly uh, and complex and interesting and it's one which we've positioned ourselves in and we've played i think we've got, we've got four companies doing it uh, and ordinarily i'm a real believer in diversification but actually it's not all doing the same thing it's all playing off different aspects mm -hmm. of this move towards the cloud and what that means in terms of connectivity unified comms etc yeah that's fascinating because as a, as a consumer of the internet you've just got these internet giants but beneath it making it all work is a whole ecosystem of huge and people have never really bothered to question it quite honestly it just sort of works yeah. <laughs> doesn't it and so you go, ooh, hmm, no, <laughs> it yeah. doesn't work. Um, I thought it did. So that's the theme that you had before COVID that's even more relevant. Yeah, it's even more relevant now. And, 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 and it, it was very deliberate. It was business to business uh, we were worried about rather than thinking about um, business to consumer, which is a different uh, situation. In business to consumer, it's all about um, download speed. Some because simplify enormously, but download speed. Actually, I'm not uploading anything really particularly interesting but if you are actually a business you need your connectivity going both ways yeah because otherwise your system won't work if you're in the cloud and that's a whole different deal into you know contention is what they call how it's contended is a really big deal in terms of how your speed is delivered to you so your, your service and internet is delivered to you so again it's 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 more complex and requires curation situations on well actually it requires you know guidance and 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 and, and um, support from consultancy as you're right it's a huge ecosystem and basically if you're a small business you don't have this on tap right you know you have to outsource it you have to get a few from that because it's changing so quickly as well yeah um, I was on your website just before the call and I saw that the most one of the most recent deals you've uploaded is a reinvestment yes so explain to me how that worked. Well, that, that's the connectivity theme. We doubled down. So M twenty four seven was uh, oh, excuse me, got some dogs in the background, but it's the joy of homework, isn't it? Um, yeah. The um, the M twenty four seven was a deal which we had in one of our earlier funds, and as we were 
sort of coming out of last year, we took it to market to lots of people and we're developing and, and thinking about what, what, does this, what does this business do and is it really valuable? And can we get into, can we continue the, the ride as it were? Uh, and in the end, we work with Aries to basically re, you know, redo the deal, if you like, and reset uh, for another five years or so, because we just thought there's just so much more to play out um, in, the, in this area. And so, of course, there's the obvious conflict of interest in your various funds, and the pricing debate, et cetera, et cetera, that we had to go through the various different uh, LP committees to agree and understand. Uh, but what, what really got us there was, was the excitement of the management team who had um, been reshaped over the five years we had the asset in the previous fund, and they were really up for the next ride. And they had great plans, but that fund didn't have the, the firepower to continue the, 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 um, the journey in quite the same way. And we were reluctant to hand it over to another private equity house. Um, and, and actually, if you look back and you go, no, no, we didn't call COVID. We didn't. But I'm quite pleased it's in our portfolio. <laughs> right. Yeah. We didn't hand it on to someone else in yeah. sort of February and find that, oh, COVID happened. Connectivity is really important. It's now the turn so. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm not saying there's a lot of hard work to do. There's, of course, a lot of hard work to do. Right. You know, many are slipping that sort of stuff. But you know, we have given ourselves a fair chance to hopefully be one of the winners with that asset over the next five years or so. The fact that you can do something like that, though, is is because you've put quite an unusual structure in place for your for your firm. You know, the last time we spoke, which was quite a long time ago, I saw you as you know a successful but relatively normal mainstream <laughs> market. What's <laughs> what that means, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> so, could you just for, for those that don't know, just explain uh, your structure and, and how you got? Sure. There? I mean, we, we're a platform, and, and we've been a platform for many many years. And and actually, what does that mean? That means we have a range of funds um, that address parts of the marketplace. Um, so we have an sort of enterprise fund uh, that focuses on smaller deals, does the same thing as the larger, we call our mid-market fund, but it allows us to seamlessly go from sort of investing a bottom end 10, 15 million pounds to top end pushing 80, 90, 100. Uh, and we, come, we look at that area and go, that's the entrepreneurial set in the UK. A smaller fund gives you a window on what's coming next. The bigger fund allows you to continue the journey and do uh, do the work, uh, continue the work, if you will. Um, and, and it allows us to, rather than having one great big fund, uh, which would mean that your average deal size goes up, because if, we, you, know, if you add up our mid-market, our current mid-market and um, uh, enterprise funds, it's you know, just shy of a billion pounds. If we were trying to do everything in that fund, then the average ticket size go up. Whereas if you had dedicated pools of capital, you can actually focus on delivering those pools of capital. Also, for the investors, they get to choose, right? Because some people are just much more attracted to the enterprise sector than a sort of larger area. Uh, and they can go with the same quality, institutional approach and quality that we have. You know, we don't say it's a smaller fund, it's sort of second-class citizens, it's just one approach to this. Um, then actually what happens is they get that quality regardless, and they get the benefits of being part of the platform as a whole. And bear in mind, that platform have Australia and the US in it. Uh, and so, you know, our smaller, currently 340 million pound uh, enterprise fund is benefiting from the knowledge and insight that the whole platform brings to bear as opposed to just waiting for this small group of people in London to deliver. Um, so why have we done this as well? We've done this because, you know, in terms of growing, it's fine. You know, we are, we are a growing platform. We want to do, you know, more and, and we're entrepreneurs ourselves in many respects. And rather than just be forced to do the obvious thing, which is, you know, keep your business tight, 
increase your funds and do lots of bigger deals. We've gone the other way of saying, actually, we'll just expand the platform and deliver the same growth, but just in a different way. And hopefully that way, rather than accepting what I think I say to my investors, which is that the rule of thumb is the bigger your, your funds and the management and the more successful people are, they become bigger, but their returns eventually start to go down. Um, I'm sort of going, well, what if we could give you as a platform the same returns you're expecting from smaller businesses, smaller uh, GPs overall, but you can put more dollars to work. That's kind of what we're trying to do here. But again, when we started this, um, we used to have a VCT, a venture platform, which we sold uh, because venture is just a bit different to what, to what, the, what we do now. Um, we started this you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago uh, with the VCTs and the uh, institutional platform. We were just one amongst, well, not many, not many at all. Today, it's just much more normal. And as usual, the US has sort of led the way because uh, it's a bigger, deeper, broader market. And they have many, many platforms. It's a sort of normal thing. And you've seen people here in Europe start to raise enterprise funds and uh, you know, long-term funds and this, that, and the other. Um, so for us, it's just sort of a development of the marketplace that is, is kind of obvious that actually private equity will not stay the same. You know, cottage industry is becoming, in many ways, sort of normalized and institutionalized. And it's become less about the plucky deal doer who has his special contact books who could go out and do deals and much more about actually we have to be thoughtful about where we're going to put the money and that requires a certain amount of resourcing you know and that's the one thing as well we've got a like hundred people living rich we can afford to and if we do we have five data scientists which we couldn't afford to do if we were just a single fund with a small office in london that must be one of the, the biggest teams in the mid-market thing yeah I, I think i think ld well ldc um depending where you put btf they're bigger as well in terms of people but yeah, it, it, it is overall one of, one, of the, one of the larger teams. And, and our job is, is to manage it and make sure it does the right things for our investors. I mean, the way you explain it, it sounds perfectly logical, but, but 15 years ago in the UK or even European mid-market, it's been incredibly radical prospect. What gave you the confidence? Because, well, could... you know, um, I, 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 my colleagues know me, you know, if, if everyone's looking left, you know, world's always looking to the right and saying, what the hell's going on over there? And why is no one over there? Um, and I, I put that into context. I mean, sector-focused, much for a sector-focused firm, we, we, we are. But we've been since 98. Um, you know, we've had our portfolio management function since 1999. Uh, uh, and in both cases, we were told, what are you doing? That's not how you do private equity. And today, I mean, no one even talks about operation management. Of course, you've got to have it. But, you know, it's in our DNA. It's how we built the firm. So, again, you know, we've got offices internationally. You're not supposed to have offices internationally. It's a smaller player in the mid-market. And I'm sort of going... You know, as the world normalizes and sort of um, integrates more, knowledge transfer moves across really quite rapidly. Uh, and, you know, one of the things we arbitrage in private equity is insight. So I'm looking at something and do I have a, an insight into why it might be more interesting and more valuable in five years' time? Well, having Australia and, and having office in Melbourne and having office in Boston enhances our insight. So. We can look at this market and say, what is going on there? And how do we look at our core market of the UK uh, and, and reshape our thinking about what good looks like and what we need to create? Uh, and so that brings a sort of level of power to the conversation. And similarly, we've transported the year to Australia. I mean, we've done, uh, what, two deal, two platform deals in Australia now that are carbon copies of what we did in the UK. And we're just benefiting from the fact that 
we've had the UK experience with delivering it in a different market context. But a lot of the themes are very much the same. Uh, and, you know, frankly, we benefit from pricing because you get there just before, you know, everyone realizes. And then, and, you know, we're a knowledge business and knowledge is the easiest thing to copy. You know, you can't hold an advantage really for more than a year or so. The minute you do a deal, it looks interesting, everyone piles in. Um, yeah. But so you have to constantly reinvent and reshape your thinking. And, and we find that whole, uh, I mean, we run it as one office, one business, one office, if you will, one big office, if you will. So our colleagues in Boston and Melbourne are part of the team and we help each other. And, you know, in the old days, well, pre-COVID, if they didn't support a deal, we'd just get on a plane and go and see them. Um, now we get on Zoom and go and see them. That reminds me when I, I used to write about venture capital in the, in the noughties, a lot of the big US VCs, when they had a big win in the US, they came and found a European company that did exactly the same thing and boom, they did it again. Yeah. And the but big also, guys benefit from that. Yeah. Also in the noughties, I was just thinking, geographic expansion for a mid-market firm used to mean, let's hire some guys in Paris and Frankfurt and see how it works out. And then five years later, pull them back. Yeah. And you went, you went to Australia and America. I mean, that's, again, you can't yeah. say how radical that probably was at the time. Yeah, well, I, I tell you what, when we were, we were sort of fundraising for our, our Fund 6 back in 2016, and we were saying we're adding, adding Melbourne as part of the platform, then eventually we'll do, we'll do Boston. Some of the RPs sort of scratch their heads and go, well, what are you doing and why? And, and for me, it's, it's, it's a simple dynamic. And you're, you're mentioning of the, the old model of how you strengthen offices versus what we were trying to do. What we said to ourselves was entrepreneurs the world over are basically the same. They have the same issues, same approach, uh, and the way they go about things, whether you're in Melbourne or in America, is very much the same. The, the cultural context is different, but very, very similar. So, do we mind where we start? Uh, well, yes, for one reason. We're going to start where we think the market is deep enough for us to make a difference, but more important, where we know and have people that we trust. Who, and, and in Melbourne, we were, you know, we wouldn't choose, we've chosen to start there, but we had a colleague who'd been with us for seven or eight years. His uh, wife was Australian, so he moved to Australia, and he's working for another GP out there four or five years. And in the conversations, because he came back and we talked regularly, and we talked about expansion, you know, we, we, we sort of came together at the same time thinking, well, Gareth, why don't you do the office for us? Uh, and, and that's what we did. Uh, and then we thought to ourselves, well, if we do Australia, you know, everything else would be a walk in the park. <laughs> I mean, really, once you go through all the sort of basic issues of even Australia, I mean, Boston was very, very straightforward. Um, and, and again, we sent one of our people across there to leave the office. Um, and so for us, it's about ensuring the DNA of Livingbridge is, is implanted firmly in these offices. Uh, and also by making sure that you don't run it as a separate entity. So for us, when they're saying Australia, you've got to do loads of deals to justify your existence. We're saying Australia, you've got to add to the platform. You've got to deliver knowledge, insight, and yes, deals. Uh, but deal count is not the only thing that, that's going to drive uh, your your our, our wanting to have you. Whereas in the past, people say the Paris office has got you know certain budgets, got standalone, it's got to deliver X. Otherwise, it's closed. Um, and worse still. It's sort of hostage to fortune because if that office did really well, then that your your your, your sort of people in that office could take that credit and walk off. Um, and we, because it's so integrated in the way we operate, um, it would be more difficult, should I say, for for other you know for them to up sticks and go because in the same way as we want something from that office, the office is taking something from the centre 
And as long as that's in balance, then it sort of makes sense for you to move forward. Is that purely um, cultural or, or is that reflected in your incentive? In all of that, all of it. So the culture is definitely an incentive structure, definitely. We all, we all feed from one carry pool. There's not a separate Australian carry pool or a separate US carry pool, just a carry pool. Uh, and um, we, we, we make sure that people understand that they're part of the whole and they've got to be and operate as part of the whole. And that's why, you know, if we need something from them, they have prepared to be involved with us. Um, so, you know, we, we would get on the VC if you're talking to management about expanding in the US and we'd be doing the work, the US office doing the work to basically, this is a pre, pre, uh, pre, um, pre-deal meeting. We sort of have, you haven't got the deal yet, you're sort of pitching for it. We deliver that and say, here are people on the ground, this is what they'll do for you. And they've got to be prepared not to do their own work, but to play into that as well. And the other way around, when they, they need people, partners to fly across and, um, you know, talk to entrepreneurs there, we've got to make sure we can do that as well. So the, the culture bit is very important and then the incentive structure we've put in place to make sure that it all, it all gels. Private equity has become increasingly um, operationally focused. As things have got more competitive, you need to add more value in the portfolio. Um, but is there a tension between that and um, being management friendly and where would you where would you place Living Bridge on the spectrum of kind of back a team and let them do their thing versus get really in the weeds? I think we we are sensitive to 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 the difference actually. So I'd say in our portfolio we've got some situations where, as you describe it, it's a great team and it's a sort of light handle of a tiller, but there's still a handle of a tiller which is really important. You know, there's always stuff you can add. Um, albeit you're not trying to sort of shove it down their throats. You're letting them sort of do their thing and have that really open dialogue so they're clear where we're trying to add value. Um, and there are other situations where you're sort of being really heavily involved and trying to help them build. Um, and it's actually not quite as clear as people think. So sometimes it's, you know, people think it's a lot of trouble, you know, a lot of problems. You're going, no. Sometimes it's, we're going to do something new, so we need to build the infrastructure. I remember we had a deal... Um, which we, we, we sold a, platform, a dental platform called Portman Dental. And there we were, we were working with an entrepreneur. We were in a minority uh, and it was a family-run business. And they wanted to go from like roughly 25 outlet sites, uh, dental sites, to, to quite a lot. And in the end, I think when we finished, we had like 80 or something, 85. And, and for the first two or three years, we didn't actually acquire anything. We, we barely opened anything. And we were saying to them, and there was a little tension in that relationship because we we're saying, you've got to get the basics right first. So how do you report, you know, really does stuff. And really what's the model of creating um, organic growth rather than just acquisitive growth? Because if you can combine that, then you have something really special. Mm. Uh, and, and so we ended up you know, from acquiring one or two a year to acquiring 20. But the thing that distinguished us from other dental chains was we got organic growth. So we were growing between five and 10% organically, as well as acquisitive growth. And, and that, that, as a consequence, we believe we got a premium for the asset uh, beyond others. Because you can say, well, we keep acquiring, but we've got a sort of magic source that helps us understand how to get organic growth. We really focus on that. Um, and that, that seems to have gone, gone well. And so the beginning was very much in the weeds by the end hands off do your thing guys and they were outstanding at doing their thing um, which, which is great 
Uh, and certainly sometimes you start off not being very hands-on and then you have to become more hands-on because you hit bump in the road. And you know, COVID is the absolute bump in the road. And so, you know, for some areas, we have to be really, really hands-on to help work through some of the really challenging issues. I hope they would appreciate what we, what we, what we brought to the table. Um, we try to be sort of in, in support. Sometimes we have to direct on certain things. Other times we have to receive, understand, process and let them do their thing for a while before getting stuck in. So I hope that people understand Livebridge is a, is a uh, flexible, uh, operationally added value investor rather than just a, there's the one way of doing it full stop. And if you don't do our way, then please don't be here. We remove you. That's just nonsense. To, to what it, yeah, sorry, we, we do both majority minority. Yeah, and, and a lot of players who have their own way of doing it, they just do majority full stop. See, that's unusual in itself because that's a different skill set, I'd imagine. One, you, you, you can, you're in control, whereas the other, you have to be... No, not really. No. I mean, you, our start point is, is it a great company? If the answer to that is yes, then the view is, well, how do we get involved? Right. And we've, again, from day one, we've done both. We've still gone, actually, majority minority is just mass. If you can behave in a minority situation well, and supportive and add value and make things work, then a majority is actually relatively straightforward. The mm. difference is when you start with these majority investors, some people are trying to play in the minority area and they don't understand. You know, right. that's, that's a different way of going about it, really. Mm. Um, but for us, it's, it's, it's you know, with half our deals, majority, half minority, actually we made exactly the same return from both our realized deals. So it's been, I would hope, a, more about is it a great company? what we learn, how we engage. Uh, and the math tends to be, it's a load of work to do on the minority. How does that feel? Because actually, you wanna make sure that you're getting a commensurate return from the situation for what you're putting in. Uh, similarly, you know, if it's a majority deal um, and they're sort of playing the partnership card, then that tends to be kind of, you know what? Did they just sell the company to us? hundred percent. Right. <laughs> um, so you've got to, you know, you've got to be sort of flexible and thoughtful and engaged in your approach to this. But it's from the same fund, would it? Or same you, fund. Yeah. Sorry? Same, same fund, fund. Yeah. 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 And so on a deal, does anyone own, own a deal? Is there a single you know, point of contact for your CEOs, let's say, or, or, or a couple of people or how, you know, integrate? Multiple. There's multiple, multiple contacts. I mean, yeah, there are the people who could transact. There's the people who originate, transact, and then, and then, you know, provide the operational support uh, area. Uh, and we like to have multiple contacts because we're also delivering added services. So we have what we call a growth acceleration team that helps with um, some of the, uh, should we say, under the hood issues that uh, that the companies have. Uh, we've got sort of marketing specialists. We've got data scientists. We've got etc. So it's about someone needs to be the conductor. To make sure that the services are being delivered that we're adding that we delivered at the right time for the company uh, and that that company has someone to sort of you know curate what's going on for them um, but we want to make sure that we have multiple levels of engagement with the company and that way you get a real sense of properly what's going on rather than it all being filtered through uh, one lens if you will yeah where do you see living bridge as an organization in 
in 10 years. I was going to say 20, but I think that's really pushing it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you ask me in January, I'd be quite no. Yeah. I think that, um, look, you know, the COVID thing will pass, right? Um, and there will be damage and scarring, but fundamentally, uh, private equity and asset class is still needed to deliver returns. And in fact, if anything, it's become more heightened because, you know, where are you going to get your return from? If you're, if you're a pension fund or a big uh, insurance company, you need to address private equity. One of the challenges has been, though, that we are a re still, relatively speaking, minority-minority sport in the investment landscape. And um, scaling what we do has been a real challenge. Uh, some of the big guys have got this and, and diversified a bit and played the, the platform game to a really good extent. And I think LivingBridge, rather than just do platform, say platform, the guiding mantra that we have is we think we understand and can help entrepreneurs deliver growth. Um, within a sort of uh, defined part of their, their journey. So it's not venture and it's not very big, but within that, there's a lot to do. And there's a lot to do, not just here in the UK, but internationally as well. So I could see Living Bridge continuing that journey of sort of focused on these fast growth entrepreneurial companies, more, a few more geographic locations, probably doubling down on the US. One office in Boston is probably not enough. Uh, similarly, we, we don't have anything in mainland Europe. I suspect that some, we've done deals made in Europe. Uh, we, you know, we, we, we would probably pick a, a different marketplace to where everyone else is. Uh, and to the extent we can't deliver it from the UK post-Brexit, we're post-Brexit, aren't we? Post-transition, um, that uh, we may have to plant a flag in, in mainland Europe. Um, and I, I would hope that we are able to solve the fundamental problem for the very large, larger LPs. That is, how do I get my dollars to work? in a scaled way, but also get decent returns as opposed to accepting to go down. And that's what we're trying to solve for. So as long as that mission continues, and I can't see, I mean, look, one statistic which I love, which is on, on, in the US, on the uh, Eastern seaboard alone, uh, so that's in around Boston, down probably to, I guess, Florida a bit. Um, there are 50,000 companies that are privately owned that make between one and ten million dollars profit. Fifty thousand. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much to do um, that you don't necessarily need to sort of have a diminishing returns game. But we're all fighting for the same small group of companies. Um, and again, that window on what's coming next, we love at Living Bridge, and, and it keeps us uh, in the game, keeps us excited. Uh, you know, I've been in this twenty-seven years now, and there goes the trend. <laughs> um, 27 years now and and I learn new things every day and it's deeply deeply exciting and I love that sense of what's coming next and uh, and it's very difficult to excite even COVID at the moment because you look at it, you get everything but but there's so much to come yeah you know, we're changing what we do we're changing how we consume we're changing how we deliver services and and it's super super exciting brilliant well your excitement is infectious it's been uh, it's been great catching up with you uh, and I wish you, uh, you and your team the best of luck as we uh, move out of this hopefully very quickly. Thanks, Ross. Great to speak to you. Take care. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.